So as a first step, every time you read the Sermon on the Mount, every time you read the Beatitudes, you would do well to minister to your own heart the simple and yet important truth, Christ desires that I would flourish. This is Beholding Christ. I'm Matt Williams, your host. I want to welcome you to part four of The Beatitudes, Flourishing in Christ's Kingdom from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul begins today to walk us through what is perhaps the most memorable part of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, verses 3 through 12 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. It's called the Beatitudes, of which there are nine pronouncements or commandments to live out, nine virtues and values which bring blessings to those of us who walk with our Lord in His kingdom. Living out these beatitudes in our daily lives may seem impossible because of the sinful nature we have, even when we are following Christ through our daily lives. Pastor Paul said this yesterday in anticipation of this seeming impossibility, quote, the only possible chance of obeying His commandments is by first being saved. If we're truly saved, we walk with Christ through the power of His Holy Spirit. Here's part three of The Beatitudes, Flourishing in Christ's Kingdom. Blaise Pascal was surely right when he said, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. All men seek happiness. As Christ preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he issues an invitation to happiness. He issues an invitation to flourishing. Jesus, in this sermon, teaches his disciples a way of living. He tells them of a worldview. He teaches them how to order their steps. He preaches also to the crowds, compelling them to join him. And in all of it, he's giving us a way by which we may flourish. Now, it's a specific kind of flourishing. The invitation that Christ gives in his Sermon on the Mount is what I would call a kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered flourishing, It is a kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered flourishing, meaning, as you know, if you've been tracking with our study in Matthew's gospel, Matthew is concerned to present Jesus above all other things as the king, the promised messianic king who will bring his kingdom. It's not yet, it is to come, 
And so we shouldn't be surprised as Jesus preaches this first sermon in Matthew's gospel that he emphasizes the coming kingdom. It's a kingdom-oriented sermon, a kingdom-oriented invitation. But in addition, it is not merely kingdom-oriented, it is kingdom-oriented and Christ-centered. It is not merely an ethic. As Jesus teaches his disciples, and so also the crowds, a way of living, he is not simply teaching them a good ethic. But in each and every teaching taken properly in its broader context, it is always, first and foremost, an invitation to him to come unto Christ, to declare you a a sinner, a needy sinner in need of a saviour. It is kingdom-oriented, it is Christ-centered, and it is an invitation to flourish. As Jesus gives this teaching, he is not intending to create a burden for you to carry. He does not intend to crush his disciples. He desires their very best. He wants for them to flourish both in this life and in the next. And thus he preaches. And in so doing, he gives an invitation, a kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered invitation to flourish. The Beatitudes are the beginning of that sermon. Perhaps the most famous part of the whole of the sermon, the Beatitudes can be thought of as something of a table of contents, something of a table of contents that helps us get into the rest of the sermon. Now, that isn't to say that every beatitude has a corresponding explanation or expansion within the sermon. That's not what I mean when I say a table of contents. Rather, as you study and come to terms with the beatitudes, we are introduced to a number of salient themes, key ideas that then will be developed later on in the sermon so that it can be said that if you really come to terms with the Beatitudes, you are now well placed to read the rest of the sermon. If the sermon as a whole is an invitation to kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered flourishing, then so also are the Beatitudes in their whole and also in their part. Every beatitude is an invitation. Every beatitude is an invitation to a way of life that leads us in the same direction as the sermon as a whole, namely to kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered flourishing. It is a flourishing, a happiness that everybody seeks. And so this morning we consider just one of those beatitudes, The very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so as to come to terms with it, I want to ask some good questions of this verse. Simple questions, but necessary questions. What does it mean when Jesus says blessed? What does it mean when he speaks of the poor in spirit? And what does it mean when he promises that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are three questions to ask of our text this morning. 
beginning with what does it mean when Jesus pronounces blessed? Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you have been tracking with our series in Matthew, it shouldn't surprise you to hear that when Jesus makes this announcement, he is drawing from an Old Testament concept. I trust that you've been following the way in which Matthew presents Jesus' life. Always the Old Testament scriptures are close at hand. He's drawing from them for good reason. Matthew was writing primarily for a Jewish audience who would know and be familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. As Jesus sounds this emphatic declaration, blessed are the poor in spirit, there is an Old Testament antecedent that is in view. With that stated, we actually have a problem on our hands. And the problem is, if you go to the Old Testament scriptures, there are two different words that come through in our English translation with the one word, blessed. The problem is, as you go to the Old Testament, in the original language, there are two different words that carry different meanings, both of which get translated for us in our English Bibles with the one word, blessed. In part, it's a translation issue. I praise God for the many good English translations that we have. You need to give thanks to God for your English Bible. We are blessed to have sound, solid English translations that make God's truths accessible to us. With that being said, the very act of translation from one language to another is always difficult because no two languages map exactly on top of one another. And so as you move from, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew language into English, There are times when the English can't quite capture what is being said in the original text. So there are two words in the Old Testament, both of which get translated in English as this one word, blessed. One of those words in the Old Testament scriptures is blessed in the sense as we find it in chapters like Deuteronomy chapter 28. You don't need to turn there. I can explain it for you. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses is on the border of the promised land. He has led his people thus far. They are preparing to enter. And so Moses gives this last sermon to them. And in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, he lists many blessings that they will know if they obey God's word. He says with great specificity. If you obey God's word, your fields will be full of of crops. If you obey God's word, your storehouses and your barns will be overflowing. If you obey God's word, you will not lack. Lots of very specific blessings. And what you see there is a kind of cause-effect relationship. It's mirrored within the same chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 28. It is mirrored by some negative curses. The opposite of this sense of blessing is cursed you will be if you do not obey God's word because a locust plague will come. 
Again, great levels of specificity. Cursed will you be if you fail to obey God's word because a plague will come upon you. You see these cause-effect relationships. The sense of this word, blessed, in that context is of God intervening in human lives now, in the present, with a very kind of action-reaction kind of relationship. That's one word that we find in the Old Testament Scriptures that is translated blessed. Another word, different, is the blessed that we read of by way of example, in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk, stand, sit with the sinners and the scoffers, but rather he meditates upon the law of the Lord day and night. He is like a fruit tree planted by streams of living water whose leaf does not wither and whose fruit is abounding, and on the last day he will stand with the righteous. That's a different word in the original language that gets translated in our English text as blessed. The difference being in Psalm 1, an action-reaction cause-effect relationship is not the primary idea. Rather, the psalmist gives to us a way of living, a manner of life. Blessed is the man who orients his life around my word. No specific promise to the effect of, I will ensure that your storehouses are full. When you read my word, see a reaction. That's not the idea of the blessed in Psalm 1. Rather, I am giving you a way of living wherein you will flourish. Life will work out well for you if you orient yourself around my word. You will understand the world around you according to my truth. And you will make better decisions and you'll be wiser in your steps. It will go well for you if you study my word. Blessed is the man. And so you see these two types of blessing in the Old Testament, two different words. When we come to the Sermon on the Mount and we read blessed, one question we have to answer is which is intended? And most likely it is the blessing of the second sort, the second variety. And the reason I say that is at least twofold. First of all, notice we don't have in the Beatitudes a second list of curses. In the Old Testament, you often find that when that action-reaction kind of blessing is given, immediately following, as is the case in Deuteronomy chapter 28, there is a list of attendant curses. This is what will happen if you don't obey. Deuteronomy chapter 28, Leviticus 26, and many other passages, we see the blessings and the curses. We don't see them here in the immediate context. And then the other reason is to note holistically the Sermon on the Mount, as we've said several times in the last few weeks, is a sermon that is intended to get into every facet of our lives. Jesus is 
all-encompassing as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and he teaches us through this sermon a way of living. And so it seems, as he says in the Beatitudes, blessed, he's teaching us not so much an action, reaction, and intervention of God in our lives here and now in response to something we have or have not done, but rather he is compelling us to a way of flourishing. He is giving to us a manner of living, assuring us that if we are to live in this way, life will go well. Not even so much in your circumstances, but in your perception in your apprehension, in your willingness to interpret the world according to the truths in God's word, you will flourish. Now, it might be that you're looking at these and saying, well, hang on, I see at every single beatitude there is an attendant promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit for because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is that not the action reaction? You're right to note that. But all of these promises concern the final day of salvation. They are what we call eschatological promises. They are not speaking of God's interceding work. He's stepping into human lives now as a response on a Monday afternoon or a Friday morning. And so what we actually see in each of the Beatitudes is a wonderful double truth that there is a flourishing given to us if we would heed this principle and a promise that will be realized on the last day. Both are true with every beatitude. Blessed, flourishing you will be if you live in according to this principle and note there is a promise that awaits you on the last day. With all of that being said, it would be entirely appropriate to translate this word that is so often rendered blessed in your Bible as flourishing, joyful, happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. And it's important to note that. It's important to note that God cares for your happiness. God cares for your flourishing. God cares that you would be a joyful Christian. I labor that point because there are so many Christians who perceive Christ to be an austere God who keeps his distance, who is up in the sky and cares only that we obey, does not care at all for our flourishing in the, in the day to day cares only for our obedience, and in large measure, that apprehension of Christ and of the Christian faith has come about because this whole book has been issued as a series of prohibitions. Too many Christians understand the Christian faith merely as a list of prohibitions. Don't do this, and don't do this, and this is forbidden. Undoubtedly, there are prohibitions in Scripture. Do not mishear me, but even the prohibitions are given as act of love by God towards us for our flourishing. God cares for your well-being. He cares for your happiness. He wants for you 
to flourish. So as a first step, every time you read the Sermon on the Mount, every time you read the Beatitudes, you would do well to minister to your own heart the simple and yet important truth, Christ desires that I would flourish. And with that in place, we then ask our second question, what does it mean then to be poor in spirit? Because this is the means that Jesus is giving us in this verse by which we are to flourish. Blessed, flourishing, happy are who? The poor in spirit. So what does that mean? Perhaps we can get into the meaning of this phrase by first considering what it doesn't mean, what it does not mean. To be poor in spirit does not mean to be mean-spirited. It is no excuse to be unloving, to lack patience, to lack grace, mercy, kindness towards others. Christians of all people should show and exude those characteristics on a daily basis. To be poor in spirit does not mean we are mean-spirited. To be poor in spirit does not mean that we are to be intellectually poor. Christians are to be students. Christians are to be students of this book. Christians are to be thinkers. We're to be those who meditate. We're to be those who wrestle with the truth given to us in God's word. There is no excuse to be lazy. Your reading of God's word should be something that is mentally demanding. If we are truly serious about knowing our God, we are to be those who study and think to be poor in spirit is no excuse for intellectual poverty. To be poor in spirit does not mean that we are to have a low self-image. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he is in no way diminishing the theology of Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, God asserts the truth that you are made in his image. Unlike anything else in the created order, every single person on the earth is an image bearer. And that infers a certain dignity, a dignity to every single human being, one that cannot be taken away. No matter what decisions you have made, what mistakes you have made, what sins you have committed, no matter how you have lived your life, there is a residing dignity in every single person by virtue of the fact that you have been made in God's image. Self-loathing, in that respect, is prohibited. It is not a low self-image. You are listening to Beholding Christ. The first beatitude, found in chapter 5, verse 1, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is widely misunderstood. Pastor Paul will fully explain what it means tomorrow, but at the end of his teaching today, he told us what poor in spirit does not mean. Quote, to be poor in spirit does not mean to be mean-spirited. He amplified this as he ended, 
To be poor in spirit does not mean to have a low self-image, and that self-loathing in that respect is prohibited. We must believe and remember daily that we are made in the image of God, as we're told in the book of Genesis, chapter 1. If you'd like to learn more about following Christ, come to our website, beholdingchrist.org, beholdingchrist.org. Select Contact Us on the homepage to connect with the caring people of Bethany Bible Church. Beholding Christ is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Hope you'll join us tomorrow as we continue in our series with part five of The Beatitudes, continuing to be taught about what it means to be poor in spirit and flourishing in Christ's kingdom. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening.